You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. Want a new podcast to look forward to each week? One that's entertaining, informative, and packed with actionable content? You know you do. And that is The Jordan Harbinger Show, a top-notch podcast named Best of Apple in 2018, and has only gotten better. Jordan goes deep with fascinating people, from authors and scientists to mobsters, spies, and hostage negotiators. During his discussions, Jordan pulls out tactical bits of wisdom for you to use to become a more informed, critical thinker. You'll learn and have a good time. He's very easy to listen to. My two recent favorites are Episode 972, Mustafa Suleiman, The Coming Wave of Artificial Intelligence, and Episode 843, Ellie Honig, How the Rich Get Away with Crime. You can't go wrong adding The Jordan Harbinger Show to your rotation. It's incredibly interesting. There's never a dull show. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, and thank you for listening to The History of World War II Podcast, Episode 109, All Roads Lead to Greece. The momentum the Allied forces had in North Africa was gone, and Churchill, never really ever directly admitting his mistake, would spend the next two years trying to get back what he already had within his grasp. And as each day went by, Lieutenant General Rommel of the Africa Corps erased more and more of what Operation Compass had captured. As may be remembered, O'Connor's forces, mostly in the form of armored cars, had reached their most western advance as they drove up to the coastal town of El Aguilia, located at the bottom of the Gulf of Serti, on February 8th. And if they had not been stopped by Churchill's desire to reinforce the Greeks, could have driven through the streets of Serti another 150 miles west on February 12th, two days before von Vekmar's 3rd Reconnaissance Unit, as well as the 5th Light Division, led by Major General Strike, the 1st of Rommel's African Corps, landed in Tripoli, a mere 200 miles away from Serti. In those two days, the Commonwealth forces, along with the RAF and Royal Navy, could have prepared quite a welcoming party for the Germans. But it never happened. Instead, this did. Rommel's initial forces landed on February 14th, without incident. And Rommel, prudently deciding he needed breathing space, sent von Weichmar's 3rd Reconnaissance Unit forward to Surti on February 16th. Again, there were no Commonwealth forces to oppose him. Then, proving himself a competent politician, as well as general, 
Rommel convinced C&C Graziani's replacement, General Garibaldi, that now as the Germans were operating in the area, it was safe to put an Italian armored division even further east, just before El Aguila, to threaten the Commonwealth forces there. This would allow the Axis to build up Surti as a supply base to sustain a larger lunge east. Within days, the newly arrived Ariete Armored Division made their way to just west of El Aguila. The British were on notice. The Germans were in North Africa. And Rommel was already comparing the desert in front of him to a vast ocean. The enemy stations before him were like islands. He didn't have to take every one to fight and lose men for each location. Instead, he could cause the enemy to retreat by merely threatening a base behind their current location. So, as the Italians were moving against El Aguila, Rommel convinced Garibaldi that the Luftwaffe was skilled enough to harass the Allied positions within Benghazi in northwest Cyrenaica without killing Italians or destroying their property there. So, two days later, on February 18th, aircraft from Flieger Corps 10 commenced a series of pinpoint attacks. The British were so harassed, they abandoned the city as a supply base. And by this time, as we have seen, the British, with Churchill leading the way, had already committed to supporting Greece after the Battle of Betafalm earlier in the month. The British didn't know, or care, who the commanding German officer was, as they had already made plans to reinforce the Greeks at the Haligmak Line, just north of Mount Olympus. The Greek part of this plan was to thicken their defense there by pulling men from Thrace and eastern Greece, who were currently stationed at the Metexas Line. And it would soon be time to test this idea of giving up North Africa in exchange for a chance at helping the Greeks. On March 1st, Bulgaria joined the Axis by formally signing the Tripartite Pact. This would allow the almost 700,000 German forces presently stationed in Romania to cross the Danube and make for their jump-off points for Greece, all without having to fight their way through. But the tales of Bulgaria and Yugoslavia within the Greek context deserve their own backstories. Bulgaria, learning nothing from their mistake at picking the wrong side during the last great war, again allowed themselves to be convinced, this time by Hitler, that the war was not only practically over, but his was, obviously, the winning side. He then sweetened the offer by informing the Bulgarian government that if they did join the tripartite pact, which meant participating in Operation Merita, then enough Greek territory would be given over to them to allow a port city on the Aegean. This carrot alone was enough for the country that was limited to the Black Sea. So, a secret agreement was made on February 8th, and German forces crossed into Bulgarian territory 20 days later. As for Yugoslavia, that was an entirely different kettle of fish. During the first week of March, Hitler and Ribbentrop worked on Yugoslavian regent Prince Paul with a combination of promises and threats, and the prince consented. So, on March 25th, his prime minister and foreign minister 
were sent to Vienna to meet with the German leader and his lackey. Equal parts promises and threats were applied, and in the end, the men signed the tripartite pact. Not that it mattered, but when they left the dictator's presence, they had in their hands not one, but two letters expressing Germany's promise to respect that country's sovereignty and territorial integrity. When the men returned to Belgrade, they found themselves unemployed. The country had risen up because of this pro-German program and removed Prince Paul, his government, and themselves from their positions. Now in charge was the heir, Peter, now king, and the government was run by General Simovic. This new government, knowing it was tempting fate, immediately offered to sign with Germany a non-aggression pact. When Hitler heard about this, he went into one of the greatest rages of his life, which is saying something. But still in that mood, he made several decisions that would, in part, bring down his 1,000-year Reich. Calling together the necessary military chieftains on March 27th, Hitler told them of Yugoslavia's betrayal and his decision at immediate revenge with Directive Number 25. The country would be attacked without a declaration or any ultimatums. The former Yugoslavia would then be carved up and given to Italy, Hungary, and Romania. The notes from the meeting would show Hitler's resulting directive that the attack against Russia, Nazi Germany's crowning achievement, would have to be postponed by four weeks. Back in North Africa, Rommel spent time in the air scouting his enemy and finding that the Commonwealth forces were leaving Benghazi and other points of western Sinaica. On March 2nd, as the British now knew the Germans were in the area, Churchill asked Wavell for his opinion of the situation. Wavell calmly explained the realities of distance and the need to carry supplies, most importantly water, in this area. And this, along with the supposed limited German equipment, which meant Rommel could probably move one infantry division and an armor brigade in about three weeks, which meant Axis forces could hold El Aguila and may even proceed to Agibadia, about 60 miles to the northeast, just south of Betafalm. But that was it. The desert terrain would not allow for anything more. For now. And as previously stated, the German high command felt the same way. Rommel wasn't expected or ordered to advance until at least mid-May, when Major General von Prittwitz's 15th Panzer Division was expected to arrive. But what Berlin nor London were considering were the five Italian divisions now under Rommel's command, the Arite, which had already been moved forward, but also the Brescia, Bologna, Pavia, and Savona, all with their support vehicles and crews. The Allied troops may have well scoffed at these men, but Rommel had material to work with. The 15th Panzer, when it came, would just be a welcomed shot of support. Then, in a bit of crystal ball gazing, Wavell's director of intelligence, Brigadier John Shear, wrote to his superior during the second week of March that whoever the German commander was, it was Shear's opinion that he would move much faster than the British wanted. First, he would secure Tripoli, done, then reoccupy Cyrenaica, seemingly well on its way, and finally move against Egypt, 
He also predicted that the second phase would begin on the 1st of April. Scheer was more right than he could possibly know. Unfortunately, the report was not backed up with witnesses or stolen reports, but instead what had been gleaned by the head spy. But Wavell could not help but focus on the simple fact that there were 650 miles from Tripoli to Benghazi. That was the reality. And yet Shear was doing his job, carefully inspecting the tea leaves, attempting to peer into the future. It wasn't until March 8th that Rommel was finally identified as the African commander, and his reputation from the Battle of France preceded him. So British intelligence got to work, fluffing out their folder on him. They soon calculated that, as yet, Rommel did not have a complete German armored division at his disposal. It was en route, but had not landed yet. Wavell decided to use this perceived lull to visit their forward position in Cyrenaica. Along with him was General Dill, chief of the Imperial General Staff. The two men met with Lieutenant General Philip Neem, recently from Palestine, who had taken over from General Jumbo Wilson. He had been made commander of the British Expeditionary Force to Greece, and what Wavell saw did not impress him. Not that he could do much about it at the moment. All available resources were en route to Greece. The best the C&C could do at the moment was to tell Neem that if Benghazi was attacked, not to fight to the last, but form up on the ridge behind or to the east of it and work with the Australians. But even this order was worthless, as at least half of Cyrenaica's command tanks, the cruisers of the 2nd Armor Division, were in the shop. The rest seemed to be taking turns, breaking down. So, the numbers on paper did not reflect the real defensive power in the area. And not that it was Wavell's way, but if he had vented at Nîmes, the lieutenant general could have easily come back with his own list of complaints. First, his command was not a force ready to push back against an Axis advance, but instead it was a garrison, and built as such. His headquarters was not mobile. This was the desert, after all. He didn't have nearly enough radio sets for effective communication, and mostly had to use the local telephone system. And this was not London, or Paris, or Berlin. A few well-placed shells, and the lines would be down. And for those serving just under Nîmes, the situation was worse. Tank Commander Gambier Perry only had a part of what should have been his to command. One of his two armored brigades was on its way to Greece. Again, he only had one half of his support group, only one mortar infantry battalion, one field artillery regiment, one anti-tank battery, and one machine gun company. There should have been a two in front of each of these. But that is war, making do with what is at hand. Still, it was asking a lot of these mostly untried troops. The other question was, why was Neem still in charge if the situation was so dire? O'Connor may have been sick, but even a laid-up O'Connor was better than a fit Neem. But no substitutions occurred. And Major General Morshed's 9th Australian Division had its own problems in Tobruk. Two of his experienced and adequately equipped brigades were on their way to Greece. 
They had been replaced by two green and under-equipped brigades who had never fought in the desert before. As for Lieutenant General Rommel, he had his own worries. But as the attacker, and not having to worry about defending everything he held, felt more confident about his situation. Technically, he was under General Garibaldi, and certainly Mussolini, but knew he could always radio Berlin if needed. No, his problem was his lack of a relationship with Field Marshal von Braulich, C&C of the German Army. Braulich didn't know, and so therefore trust Rommel, and why should he? But Rommel's ace was Hitler, or rather, the connection between the two. When Wavell was visiting Nîmes, Rommel was in Berlin, talking to Hitler and getting oak leaves added to his knight's cross from Hitler himself for his magnificent job in France. The two men, the dictator and the lieutenant general, talked alone for a while. No one knows what the details were, but obviously Rommel felt more comfortable about moving ahead as long as he was successful. Hitler appreciated daring, but winning even more. So, if Rommel could give his leader both, he would soon find the men and the material he needed given to him to march on Cairo. However, Rommel was unaware of Operations Merita, the impending attack on Greece, and Barbarossa, Hitler's ultimate desire to bring Stalin low. But Rommel's problems were real-world. His troops didn't know anything about the desert, much less fighting in it. The Italians certainly couldn't fill them in, as they had fought against the elements, as opposed to learning the rules of the land. Also, his equipment was not designed for these harsh conditions. But Rommel would learn. He would learn and teach his men. The two things he did have going for him was the battle experience of his men and the quality of German engineering. His tanks may not have been built with the desert in mind, but Rommel quickly learned how to use what he had until it could be adapted. And under him, the Africa Corps did both learn and adapt very well and very quickly. And having returned from Berlin during the third week of March, perhaps with Hitler's words still ringing in his ears, Rommel ordered strike to attack and hold Algela on March 24th. Meanwhile, in East Africa, the Duke of Osta's position was crumbling fast, and it would have behooved the Allies mightily had someone spoken up and said, The situation here is well in hand, isn't it? Why don't we move some of these forces to North Africa to help make up for their losses or lack of experience? But the question was never raised. Besides, after all the fighting being done by the Allies in this theater, the pending victory was just too sweet to turn away from. We left Lieutenant Colonel Wingate harassing the vastly superior in numbers and guns fort of Deborah Marcos during the last two weeks of March. But Wingate's, or rather Selassie's, numbers grew by about a 100 men a day. And as April got started, the Italian commander on the scene, Colonel Mara Ventano, decided, not for the first time, it was time to go. The outlining forts were ordered to fall back to Deborah Marcos, and on the 4th of April, the Italians and some of their local supporters headed almost due east for Desi, 
where other retreating Italian forces were also gathering. Desi was about halfway between Deborah Marcos and Djibouti along the coast. As noted, only some of the local tribesmen headed east with the Italians. Many stayed behind, like the emperor's main local enemy, Ras Halu. As Haley Selassie entered Deborah Marcos on April 6th, he was soon followed in by the rebel chieftain, but this time not to kill the emperor, but to redevote his loyalty to his prince. Now, it must be said that Colonel Maraventano simply did not pick up and hightail it to Desi to the east. His superior, the Duke of Aosta, was en route as well, after being driven out of the capital, Addis Ababa, on April 5th. Which brings us to the 23rd Nigerian Brigade of the 11th African Division, under Major General Weatherall, who was under General Cunningham, brother of Admiral Cunningham. It will be remembered that after the Italians were pushed out of Kismayu along the East African coast, Weatherall decided to keep going, despite his lack of supplies. But the only way the advance could be kept alive was by literally stripping most of the 11th African and giving it to the 23rd Nigerian Brigade, who, now supplied, could stay on the heels of the Italians, retreating haphazardly to the northeast. First, the Italians were pushed back to Mogadishu. They tried to set up strong defensive positions along the way, as to have the Nigerians commit suicide by walking into a trap. But each time this was attempted, the local forces simply moved to the left or the right of the trap, thus threatening the would-be ambushers from one side or the other, which meant the Italians had to again retreat, but double-timing it and each time, leaving more and more of their supplies behind. Hey everyone, Ray here. I've been using Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today. And like many of you, I think about my golden years, and I hope they're golden. I have a Roth IRA with Fidelity, and another with Merrill. And I have consolidated them into one hub with Yahoo Finance. There, I have access to expert analysis to help me stay atop this ever-changing world. And with Yahoo Finance at my fingertips, I can focus on my goals of paying off my house and getting ready for, you know, me time. And since Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, they know what they're doing. It's the number one finance destination with their independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. With a community of over 90 million users each month, their real strength is helping you on your way to financial success. So, for comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. But solace was not found in Mogadishu for the Italians. The Nigerians, being supplied as best they could by those left behind, were right on their heels. Simply, De Simone's men either had to surrender or keep moving, and they chose the latter. But the Nigerians stayed with them. The Italians then turned north, as did their pursuers, because by now their ultimate objective was not De Simone's men, but the city of Harar, located just west of the British Somaliland and about 150 miles southeast of Desi. 
Switching things up, DeSimone had rear guards stationed behind his main force, in the hopes of slowing down the Nigerian brigade. Even though the pursuers were already traveling so fast as to make it hard for them to be resupplied. On March 17th, Weatherall's men pushed the Italians out and occupied Jijiga, located about 40 miles southeast of Harar. By this time, these men had covered 750 miles, averaging about 65 miles a day, which explains why the Italians couldn't adequately set up an ambush. Sensing salvation in Harar, the exhausted Italians kept moving northwest. The Nigerians, after securing Jijiga, continued their pursuit. But by then, De Simone came upon the Mardra Pass, rumored to be just as formidable as the pass before Karen. When Wetherall's men came to the base of the pass, he ordered them to hold up. There was no sense in dying by rushing a fortified position after coming all this way. The other half of the 11th African Division, the 21st East African Brigade, had by this time been resupplied and was following in the trail of the Nigerians. Wetherall decided that only when the two brigades were reunited would an attack be attempted. But then, word got to Wetherall that the Italians were not intending to stay bottled up at the pass, but simply resting. They seemed determined to continue their northwesterly march, and so, realizing they were not setting up an ambush, but rather lying low, catching their breath, the Major General had his Nigerians hit the stunned Italians. As had happened so many times before, one can imagine some of the Italians taking a few shots for honor's sake and then hitting the trail. The Nigerians occupied the pass by nightfall of March 21st. The Italians tried the same trick at Babile Pass, but were again outmaneuvered and forced to continue. This movement meant the Africans were now within range of Harar, so they pushed on and entered the city on March 26th. The Italians ran to stay ahead of the Nigerians, but what they didn't know was that they weren't the prime targets. Not anymore. As of force, the Italians were finished. Their objective was the city in front of them. De Simone's men just happened to be in between them and their city. Once Wetherall's men were settled down in Harar, there was good news waiting for them. By this time, two Indian battalions had disembarked from Aden, the main port city of the Aden Protectorate under British control, just across the Gulf of Aden, and reoccupied Berbera. So once the Nigerians started up their next campaign, the supply base was closer to them by some 600 miles. And their next stop was Addis Ababa, the Ethiopian capital. General Cunningham and C.N.C. Wavell had been discussing the entire theater, and though things were going well here, the same could not be said for North Africa, and potentially Greece, no matter how rosy the glasses one wore were. Cunningham attempted to help out the C.N.C. by offering the following. If Wavell allowed his men to continue their northwest route, they would soon be in Dire Dawa which was on the rail line between Djibouti along the coast and the capital. And as there was no organized resistance in front of him, Cunningham would be able to then turn over to Wavell the 1st South African Division and the 5th South African Brigade straight away 
What's more, once the men who were bound for the capital got to the rail line and absconded a train, Cunningham could then release some of his transport. Wavell, sensing he would need both, and much more in the near future, agreed. The Commonwealth forces under Wetherall were given their orders and started out on another journey that would take them to the capital of Ethiopia. When we left the battle for Dungalas Gorge, the path to the city of Karen, elements of the 4th and 5th Indian Divisions under General Platt had secured Fort Dologorodic on the right side of the entrance at the top, and the Italians under General Lorenzini, himself under General Fruschi, attempted seven times between March 18th and the 22nd to retake the fort. They failed each time, but what's more, had lost many men during those attempts. Then General Fruschi found out that General Lorenzini, well respected by both sides of the battle, had died during one of the attempts. Fruschi was running out of men, fast, and it was his very numbers that were allowing him to continue the Duke's policy of playing for time. For surely peace or an Axis victory would come to Europe. The stubborn British were having their towns bombed once again as the weather across the channel improved. And as impressive as the Greek defensive was, Italian numbers had to win in the end. Time was the answer. And as direful as the situation was for the Italians, General Fruschi believed he had found the chink in the Commonwealth's armor. Convinced that the Allies would take a conservative approach to combat and husband their numbers, Fruschi couldn't see a major push from his adversaries on the roadblock deeper within the gorge until Sandshill and Briggs Peak, just outside of the gorge's opening, was safely in Allied hands. But though the Indians had attacked the two heights no less than three times, failing each time to hold them, they did learn something. There was a narrow path from Sandhill that led inside the gorge, emerging just behind the railway humps, a point further within the gorge, just behind the obstinate roadblock. And if Sandhill could not be taken, perhaps the Indians could sneak by the Italians at night and attack the humps, which would allow them to hit the roadblock from front and back. General Platt signed off on this, and the attack was set for March 25th. But upon hearing the news of the other Italian forces crumbling elsewhere, Platt changed the order and had Sanchil attacked at first light. It's not known if the Italians on Briggs Peak or Sanchil knew of their country's deteriorating situation in East Africa. However, the men did not fight as intensely as before. The Indians were able to push the men off the hills. With this done, the plan continued on, as others of the 5th Indian hiked along the narrow trail into the gorge and attacked the railway humps, which fell by the end of that same day. From the moment the railway humps fell, the sappers and miners from both Indian divisions were brought in to clear a path to the roadblock. The men worked non-stop, taking shifts. By the next day, General Fruschi could see the writing on the wall and had all forces that could pull back. At 5.30 a.m. on March 27th, Platt's very few I-tanks entered the gorge, made their way along the route, supported by the 29th Indian Infantry Brigade, passed the former roadblock, 
and rail humps and entered Karen later that morning. There, too, the Italians took a few pot shots at the approaching Indian troops and then left. Some made for Desi, 350 miles to the south, with General Frusky, the others deciding on Misawa, along the coast. But Platt had his men push on, and that coastal town fell on April 8th. On the larger stage, the fall of Karen helped the Allies immeasurably, as on April 11th, U.S. President Roosevelt declared that the Red Sea and Gulf of Aden were no longer combat zones, and American ships could once again sail those waters. And as the Lend-Lease Bill had been made law on March 11th, U.S. ships were able to carry more weapons and supplies than Britain could ever hope to pay for, as they had been doing since the beginning of the war. The Commonwealth of Nations, led by Great Britain, were on their way to Greece. Indeed, the only thing slowing down the oncoming support were the number of ships. So, first came the New Zealand Division and the 1st Armored Brigade, then the 6th Australian, along with a Polish Brigade, and finally the 7th Australian, along with a section of an armored division. All told, about 100,000 men. The first convoy was set to move on March 4th. As stated, the Germans crossed into Bulgaria, that country having officially joined the Axis on March 1st, clearly on their way to Greece, after waiting in Romania to the north. When word of this reached British Foreign Minister Eden and General Dill, Chief of the Imperial General Staff, who were in discussions with the Turks at Ankara, they dashed back to Greece. The next day, March 2nd, brought shock and dismay to the two men, as no orders had been given, per the agreement between Greece and Great Britain, that Greek troops in Thrace, far northeastern Greece and eastern Greece, be pulled west and added to the Halakmon line. But now, the opportunity was passed. If the approaching German forces found out the forces were shifting, they might continue on and catch the Greeks, not stationary, and all guns pointing their way, but instead have everything bundled up for movement. But even worse, politically, how would it look to have the Greeks, who had amazed the world with their defense, pull back from another coming fight? Inconceivable. And yet, already, there were those that did not say, much less scream, that the Greek adventure was just that, certainly not a sound military plan. Not that it made a difference, but at least Churchill and London took the responsibility of the Greek adventure in a cable to Eden on March 7th. Quote, Cabinet decided to authorize you to proceed with operation, and by doing so, accepts for itself the fullest responsibility. We will communicate with Australian and New Zealand governments accordingly. Unquote. But before we jump into this second invasion of Greece, which will become a dreaded second Norway for the British, a backstory is needed to view this doomed enterprise in its proper light. After the fall of France, Nazi Germany was at its height thus far. Surely, to Hitler's thinking, Britain would be more than happy to sign on to a deal that gave Europe to Germany which would leave Britain its vast world empire. 
But as we have seen, Great Britain, with Churchill now at the helm, said no. Which brought about the beginning of the Battle of Britain. Germany's attempt to scare and or intimidate their Anglo-Saxon cousins across the channel to see the light. Still, the British said no. Gehring, in charge of the Luftwaffe, was convinced that the Midlands held those stodgy conservative elements that backed Churchill. So, over the course of the next year, England proper along the coast, London, and the area north of it, the Midlands, came in for intensive bombing. And Hitler, not really wanting it to go this way, was still satisfied that Britain would see the light. It would just take some more time. Of course, those across the water, by the opening of 1941, were desirous of some payback for the 23,000 islanders that had died between July and December of 1940. But if Britain could not be attacked and made to submit directly, there were other ways. According to Hitler's worldview, the United States of America and Russia were supporting Britain in its defiance. The U.S. was offering material support, and Russia was Germany's untrustworthy neighbor that dare not let the Nazi state focus solely on the island nation. But, and try to keep up with me here, in Hitler's head, as all the problems were related, so too were the answers. An attack on Russia, something Hitler desired anyway, would remove one of the supports from Britain. Also, this would free up Japan, no longer concerned with a defeated Russia, so they could focus on causing all kinds of trouble for the United States. The Americans would then be forced to focus on their own part of the world. This would allow German U-boats to starve the stolid Brits into submission. The war in Europe would be over. Hitler could live out the rest of his life ruling over that part of the world that mattered to him. He would be the Augustus of this new world order. But there were the Russians. They didn't trust him any more than he trusted them. First, Der Fuhrer would have to get them to lower their guard, then dash in, as his armies had done so many times before, and finish off the Slavic race as a power in Europe. With this in mind, Soviet Foreign Minister Molotov was brought to Berlin on November 12, 1940, to ostensibly talk of bringing Russia into the tripartite pact but really to throw off Stalin's interest in the Balkans as the Italians were attacking Greece and Hitler's little power plays there, thus setting up the invasion of Russia. But the Nazi interpreter, much less Hitler or Ribbentrop, could handle the questions the Russian foreign minister fired at them. When Hitler brought up the tripartite pact, Molotov answered with, Russia wants Finland and we would like to have Bulgaria. When Hitler brought up the best way to divide Britain's empire once it capitulated, Molotov pretty much repeated himself. The few times when Molotov was not doing an impression of a broken record, he again very straightforward and intensively said, Russia does not care for promises on paper. What tangible guarantees can we be given to protect us from Germany? The discussions went downhill from there. Two weeks after Molotov left, Hitler got a letter from Stalin saying, of course we would join the tripartite pact. 
We just need a few paltry conditions granted. They were anything but. After reading them, Hitler said, Stalin is nothing but a cold-blooded blackmailer. This was in late November. On December 18th, Hitler issued Directive Number 21 for Operation Barbarossa. As touching Greece, when Hitler conceived of Operation Merita, Germany's attack on Greece, back in November of 1940, it was only to support the Italian attack, but also to have more forces in the area to protect the Ploesti oil fields to the north in Romania. But now that Mussolini had completely cocked up the entire invasion, Operation Merita was changed by Hitler on December 13th to include the German occupation of Greece and to use airborne troops for some of the Greek islands. Then Hitler pressured Bulgaria to allow Germany to set up early warning stations along its border with Greece. And finally, the garrison in Romania was strengthened, its boundaries now bursting with German personnel and equipment. All this activity got the attention of Stalin, but Hitler simply responded, What, this? No, this is just to keep the oil safe uh, from the British. And as the early months of 1941 saw the Greek situation go from bad to worse for the Italians in the form of RAF assistance, known as Operation Barbarity, Hitler kept stressing to Metexas that as long as British planes were not granted access to landing strips in northern Greece near his oil, Germany would not consider intervening. But the Greeks knew he was lying. The British knew he was lying. Yet the Greeks, out of desperation, made sure their allies stuck to this condition. Throughout late 1940, most of the ranking British military men were against sending troops to Greece, but they certainly did not feel that way about Crete. And leading this charge was Sir Andrew Cunningham, Admiral of the British fleet in the Mediterranean. He made it clear, in no uncertain terms, how devastating it would be for the British naval position in the Med if the Italians or Germans controlled the island. So, with Greece's consent, British forces were stationed at Suda Bay on the western side on October 31st, 1940. Those forces were made up of the 2nd Battalion of the York and Lancaster Regiment, the 2nd Battalion of the Black Watch, and part of the 14th Infantry Brigade. This allowed the Cretan 5th Division to make for the mainland and help repulse the Italian invaders. But as the Greco-Italian War went further against the invaders, more people, especially Churchill, warmed to the idea of sending reinforcements to the mainland. But in the end, the decision was one of politics. If the British did not support Greece in their hour of need, why should Yugoslavia or Turkey believe anything that came out of London? This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. On February 22nd, 1941, Three weeks after Metexas died, the Greek government, but not the new Prime Minister Alexandros Koritsits, 
met with Foreign Minister Eden, Wavell, RAF, CNC, Middle East Longmore, and General Dill. The Greeks had to be dragged with specific promises by Eden to the signing table, but by the early morning of the next day, an agreement had been reached. But time would show that the support promised did not match what landed on Greek soil. Also, Eden left out that, as far as he was concerned, the idea was to have British troops fight alongside the Greeks at least until the Turks came in, though Turkey was not privy to his thinking. And, as already mentioned, a week later, March 1st, German divisions entered Bulgaria. But because of the vague wording by Eden, General Papagos did not move Greek troops from the Metexas line to the east, nor bring down any Greek troops currently in Albania to the Halakmon line along the Halakmon River just north of Mount Olympus. And one can't blame the man. He wasn't about to move any men until he knew the intentions of Yugoslavia and simply abandoned territory that had been won with Greek blood, some of it of innocent civilians. For now, the Greek soldiers that made up the Metexas line would stay put, but as the Commonwealth forces disembarked and made for the Halakmon line, they were told they would be joined by three thrown-together Greek divisions. As early March crept by, Churchill began to realize this Greek adventure was a mistake. There weren't enough Commonwealth troops. The Greeks were exhausted. The Germans were fresh and plentiful and experienced, and their morale was high. And Mussolini had more men to throw into the attack. So, as reality hit the British authorities, there began, at first, a passive, written game of finger-pointing that would only grow and intensify over the years, well after the war was over. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. So before I go on and, and say hi to my new members and thank everybody who's donated or bought a mug, uh, I just want to let you know that, um, yes, I realize it's been a month since my last episode. Uh, I think I'm going to try something different. By the time I have researched East Africa, North Africa, Greece, um, it, it just takes so long to put it all together. So what I'm going to do is do shorter episodes. It'll probably still be at least 25 minutes, probably 30 minutes, but I'm just going to cover one thing at a time. Um, East Africa, we're pretty much going to wrap up next time. I probably need five minutes tops to, 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 to get rid of, get all that done. And then I'll do like an episode on Rommel and then I'll go back to Greece and I'll go back and forth and I'll, and I'll, that way I can put them out a lot faster. I promise you. And, um, I'll keep doing that until I get to the invasion of Russia, and I'll cover the first year of Russia, and then I might stop, and we'll talk about Lend-Lease, what's going, been going on in the Atlantic, the U-boat battle, all that good stuff, um, Ultra, uh, Enigma, all that kind of stuff, and then we'll uh, and then we'll go from there. So uh, I'm sorry for the delay. I'm just trying to figure out a better way to do it. I um, hope that's okay with everyone, but I will be getting this out a lot sooner, a lot more frequently. They just won't be um, 40 five or 42 minutes long. So just bear with me. I promise you that's what I'm going to do and I'll be able to do a, a lot better job in that way. You won't have to wait so long. So first I'd like to say hello to my latest members, Christian E from Argentina. Sorry, our team lost the world cup. Uh, Aaron W who I think donated 
and donated money for a book about the Battle of the Atlantic and became a member. So, Aaron, thank you very much. He's from Venice, California. Then there was Jennifer S. from Winfield, West Virginia. Hello. Thank you. Tara B. from Lansing, New York. John L. from Social Circle, Georgia, the most unique city name I've ever heard. Another John L. from Brooklyn, New York, probably not the same person. Carrie M. from Wilmington, North Carolina. Tony P. from Sacramento, California. Gary M. S. from New South Wales, Australia. Scott O. R. from Coventry in the West Midlands, the UK. Joseph W. from Sumner, Washington. And Paul S. B. from New Salem, Massachusetts. So hello to all my latest members. Thank you very much for supporting the show. It really does make a huge difference. And I think... There's, what, 30, 37 episodes. It's hard. It's, hard. it's late at night here. I think there's 37 episodes for you to enjoy, and I'll be doing two more this month near the end of the month. Uh, as far as the donations, again, I want to thank Aaron W. Uh, for, so I can buy the book, The Battle of the Atlantic. Um, Mark F. from Louisville, Kentucky. Thank you very much, Mark. Um, and Christian L. from New South Wales, Australia. I'd also like to thank Barbara B. from Lockport, New York, for buying a mug, a Churchill mug. Thank you very much. Whoops, I think I missed two members. John M. from San Francisco, California, and Kim D. from Queensland, Australia. And also, um, for those of you who follow me on Facebook, you've probably seen this. Um, I now have the History of World War II um, baseball caps. Uh, not as dorky as they sound. I think they look pretty cool, and you can see pictures of them um, on the website. And I think also on Facebook, and I think on the website. If not, I'll put it up soon. But I'd like to thank um, Mark T. and Scott B. for buying a baseball cap. That's pretty cool. I really do appreciate it. And I just want to say hi to John W., who uh, emailed me about a BBC podcast. It was a, it was a show about why Germany fought so hard to the bitter end. Um, they certainly didn't want Russia um, coming in and taking over because there was a lot of hatred and uh, they were all trying to keep the Russians out and let the Americans come in. So it was pretty ugly all the way up to the end. And then I'd like to thank John C. from Regent's Park, New South Wales in Australia, who was writing to me about Churchill and he liked the way I ended the series. And he just wanted me to know that uh, Churchill's not quite so popular down under and I completely get that, the whole Dardanelles thing. Um, I'd like to think I, I further shed light on that it wasn't all his fault, but still, I, I totally get it. And there was a lot of life, a loss of life for no good reason. So, you know, as just as a human being, I'm very sorry that happened. So um, we are going to attempt to, to do the tour again. I'm, I'm looking forward to this. So we, we had some people sign up last year, just uh, this year, excuse me, just not enough. I'm hoping to do better next year. So I think we've got it set for July. Maybe some people can go on their summer breaks, but go to Geek Nation Tours and you can see all the information there. We've got the dates, we've got the locations. We'll probably tweak exactly what we see a little bit. Um, but if you if you go on there and you send an email, I'm sure um, he would be able to be happy to give you all the information as soon as it's available. So we are trying that again. If there's any way you could do it, um, please sign up or please send an email. He's asking about it so he'll know who's interested. So again, I'm so sorry this uh, episode took so long to get out. The next one will not take so long. I absolutely promise it. And I will see you as soon as I can with episode 110. Take care, everyone. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. 
Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.